please open your Bibles with me to Psalm 98 this morning. Psalm 98. I'm not really going to be expounding on this particular text this morning, but I want this text to tune our hearts to sing another song that's found in Romans 11 a little bit later. But let me read to you this psalm in its fullness here this morning, beginning in verse 1. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth in joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is a, a wonderful psalm to tune our hearts to sing God's praise in Romans 11. In this psalm, you see partly the responsibility and the response of those who are redeemed by God to sing praises to him. But you also see something else going on there in verses 7 and 8. We see creation respond to the creator. This song in, in Psalm 98 reveals creation's response to the command of its creator. But the greater song that we'll look at this morning in one sense in Romans 11 doesn't reveal creation's response to the command of the Creator. It reveals man's response to the grace of our Savior. We hear that song sang loudly, I believe, by the Apostle Paul in Romans 11, 33 to 36. Let's turn there this morning and hear this song of praise to our God for His redeeming power and His great grace. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Paul pins this song. He pins this song after writing about God's plan of salvation. What he did was he just wrote in the first five chapters about how a just and a holy God can pardon sinners and magnify his own justice. And then in the next two chapters, he wrote about how Christ, Jesus, reversed the curse of Adam and magnified God's blessings to man through the second Adam, Jesus. 
And then the next four chapters, Paul wrote about how God chooses to show mercy to the unworthy to magnify his grace. And and now here in Romans 11, you see this all come to a head. Here we have Paul responding to the revelations he's been given about God's grace in all the chapters that flowed before this. This is called a doxology here. It's the pinnacle of praise in Paul's heart flowing out to the Romans. This is a song of praise to God for his sovereign plan to save his people from their sins. This is a doxology we need to be singing. This should be written in our hearts and overflowing and coming out of us through our lives, through our actions, through our words. Let me give you an outline for what I'm going to cover this morning. We're going to talk about this song. This song is about, number one, God's exaltation. And number two, it's about God's determination. And number three, it's about our exaltation. God's exaltation, God's determination, and our exaltation of God for what he has shown us in the gospel. Understand this. This isn't Paul's song per se. Paul penned the song. Paul wrote the song under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this song was actually composed by God. He's the composer. God composed this song, though, for a purpose. This song is supposed to do what it does here in the Apostle Paul's life. It produces praise in those who are redeemed, and it humbles those who are redeemed. It produces praise in our hearts, and it humbly changes the way we live our lives when we think about what God has done in saving us by his sovereign grace. The first part of Paul's song here in Romans 11:33 is focused on number 1 God's exaltation and man's humiliation. God's exaltation and man's humiliation. Look at verse 33. Now, this is humbling to man. Man doesn't like to think that we can't solve all the problems, that we can't understand all the intricate details of, of life, yet man falls short. Of this, Man cannot plumb the depths of God's knowledge and wisdom. Look what it says. Oh, oh, this is a great expression. He is, he is just amazed when he says this. Don't miss that in the text. It's not, oh, the depth of the riches. It's, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! Exclamation point. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We can't judge his ways. We can't even discern all his ways. We don't even understand really anything other than what he reveals in scripture about his purposes and his ways. We can rest in those, but we can't fully exhaust them. We can't exhaust the mind of God. No, this is humbling for man because we think we're pretty smart. We think we're pretty adept. We think that we can handle any problems. We can eventually solve those problems through philosophy, psychology, human ideologies of all types, but not this one, folks, not this one. We're never going to understand this one in its fullness here on earth. And even in glory, we're going to experience knowledge that grows in the light of this truth. I find that encouraging. I find that amazing that that we will be able to stand before the holy God of the universe and know him and yet not fully know him and yet continue to grow in our relationship with him. And that's amazing. It's encouraging to think about. 
always coming to him, always being fed by him, always being nourished by him. We can experience that now as believers, as we come to his word, as we fellowship in the truth. He feeds us, he nourishes us, he he teaches us his ways and his word plants deeply in our heart a passion to glorify his name. And that's what Paul had in his heart. And Paul wants others to understand, those at Rome and us today, to understand that we can't really fathom this great wisdom and knowledge that God has. And it should humble us. It should amaze us. Now, I want to give you a couple of examples of God's wisdom and knowledge from Scripture. I want to give you a biblical glimpse, a humbling glimpse of the wisdom and knowledge of God in creation, in creation, to help you cultivate humility in your minds, in your thinking. We need to have our minds renewed, right? We need to have our minds humbled by the wisdom and knowledge of God in creation. So go with me to Job 36. Job 36 this morning. 36 verse 26. And listen as I read. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. For he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. It's crashing, declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go and is lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise, to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the land of every man that all men whom he had made may know it. Then the beasts go into the, to their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick clouds with moisture, and the clouds scatter his lightnings. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habited world. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. He causes it to happen. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Hear this, church. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God and creation. We can't fathom this. We can't fully understand this. Thunder, lightning, storms, snow, ice. They're at his beck and call. He directs them. He is orchestrating all of this in creation. Now, can you understand all that? Can you understand how he sustains this planet constantly, holding it together, every atom held together by this sovereign creator? 
I can't fathom all this. This humbles my mind. When I think I'm smart, when I think I've got things figured out, I just read things like this and say, I'm an idiot. I know nothing. God is amazing. I can't even solve my little problems. I certainly can't unravel the universe here. And yet the Bible teaches us that God does all this without exerting any energy. It's what he does because that's who he is. He's the creator. And as, as amazing as that is, I want to take you something, to something much more amazing. I don't want to just look at the wisdom and knowledge of God in creation. I want to look at the wisdom and knowledge of God in salvation. I want to look at this to help you not just cultivate humility in your mind, but to cultivate praise in your heart, in your affections. The mind is transformed by the truth. The affections are transformed by the truth. And when that combines, it brings out praise. And that's the intention of all of God's word. As it informs us, it is to conform us into the image of Christ, who praised God with everything he had in him 24-7. Look at Ephesians 2 to see the wisdom and knowledge of God in salvation. Now, we heard this text read during the equipping hour, and we are going to read this again, verses 1 to 5 anyway, so that we would actually be reminded once again of the great grace and the wisdom and knowledge of our God who saved us so that we could respond to him with praise and adoration and thanksgiving as we ought to as his redeemed people. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins by describing our condition. Every single human being ever born on the planet save Jesus Christ falls into this category. This describes us perfectly until the day of redemption. And we'll see that in verse 4. Look what it says. And you were dead. That's the word necros in the Greek. And it actually, here's, here's the big, deep definition of the word necros. It means dead. That's what it means. That's exactly what God intends to portray here, is spiritually we are incapable of responding to God. And not only that, you'll notice something. He says we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, we're living in sin, but we're dead. So we're active transgressors. We're, we're actively acting on our nature, which is sinful and deadly and corrupt and decaying. And we're living in that death apart from God's grace. And have you guys ever noticed what death smells like? Have you ever walked outside and smelt a dead animal? That's what we smell like in God's nostrils, apart from his grace. It is a stench that only Christ's blood can wash away. He says in verse 2 further that we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan, folks. Every one of us were followers of Satan before God saved us. This is how bad we are, apart from his grace. The spirit we were following that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. See, the body and the mind, the soul, they're connected here. The soul is tainted by sin and the body follows suit. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Not only the, the children who deserve wrath, but we were children who were wrathful against our Creator. But then it says this in verse 4. But God, being 
rich or abounding in mercy because of the great or the large or the abundant love with which he loved us. Even, even when we were living in verses 1, 2, and 3, it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Now, that's pretty astounding. But it even gets better. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Can you fathom this? Can you, a defiled and wretched sinner, change your nature? Can the leopard change its spots? Can, can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Neither can you when it comes to spiritual conditions. You can't change yourself. I can't, I can't understand the wisdom and knowledge of God at this level. How did he do this? And a better question for me is why? He doesn't need us. I don't even know why he would want us. Except for what he reveals to us in Scripture. For the praise and the glory of his great name. To display his grace through us. We're trophies of grace, saints. That's what God wants you to be. Be a trophy of his grace that not only saves you, but changes you from the inside out. You have new affections. You want to praise him. This, was, this is what the Apostle Paul was doing in Romans 11. Paul's responding to all these revelations he's been given by God to give to these people at Rome. He's responding to his salvation. And it's the song of his heart. I think it was always in Paul's heart. I'll mention this later. But it seems to me like you can't go anywhere in the New Testament epistles that Paul wrote and not find him singing praises to God. It's always there. And my question for me is, and I'll apply it to you as well, is am I doing that? When I contemplate the gospel, is it just something that I do intellectually? Is it something I do just religiously? Or is it something that's changing me? Is it, is it something that's transforming me on the inside? And I need to examine why it's not. Sometimes it's not because I'm simply fleshly. I'm reading my devotions. I'm doing my duties. And I'm not stopping, considering why I have been called to salvation. The purpose of your salvation is not heaven. Heaven's the reward that God gives us. But it's not the purpose of your salvation. The purpose of your salvation, my salvation, is to magnify this grace here on earth and in heaven. Understand, heaven will be filled with cross-centered songs. We'll never get over grace. It will be the theme of our heart forever. So we need to start singing it now, like Paul, here in this text. Paul asks in Romans eleven thirty-three these rhetorical questions. He, he, he says, how unsearchable are God's judgments and how inscrutable his ways. In other words, he's saying... How deep do you think God's wisdom and knowledge truly is? Can, can, you, can you plumb the depths of his knowledge and wisdom? And the answer is, of course, no. But I can do one thing. I can rejoice in what he reveals about it in Scripture. I can worship him according to his word that he reveals to us in Scripture. But this, this revelation that we have in Scripture is given to us by God according to His plan and, and by His power so that it would change us internally and, again, externally. 
this, this plan and power of God, this wisdom and knowledge of God should produce humility in our hearts and praise in our mouths and our lives because we are his redeemed people. We shouldn't just sit around and question why, 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 how, how, how. Those are things we can consider, but the heart of man is deceitfully wicked. And if we're not careful, we start going into places that angels dare not go because we try to go outside the bounds of Scripture at times, and that's dangerous. At times, all of us have thought about God's wisdom and purpose and had questions, questions about why he saved us, why he didn't save others. His wisdom and his purposes produce those kinds of questions, but they also produce doubts sometimes, doubts about why God would save some men who deserve hell and yet not save all men. I don't want to raise a hand, but have you ever thought that? I've thought that. And then I thought, why did he save any men? We don't deserve that at all. But our hearts are prone to, to wander. Our hearts are prone to consider things sometimes that are really unbiblical. Because our flesh wants to have some sort of understanding. We want to grasp it. We want some foundations that we can actually define. And sometimes, folks, with God, you just can't define his grace. It's beyond comprehension. But God knows we're weak. So what God does in Paul's song of exaltation, he inserts a series of questions to quiet our weary minds and humble our hearts. These questions should put to rest our doubts about God's sovereignty and his reason for saving anyone. Look with me at the second part of Paul's song in Romans 11:34 to 35. Here the song is focused on secondly God's determination And I could add this, God's sovereign determination to glorify himself by magnifying his grace through a series of questions. Now that point sounds like a Puritan title of a book, doesn't it? It's like long, long, long. But listen, it's important. This series of questions, I believe, is intended to reveal to us God's sovereign determination to make much of himself through our redemption. Not make much of us, but make much of Him and His grace. Look at verses 34 and 35. These are humbling questions about God's determination, not man's accomplishments. What God has determined, man can't quite understand. He says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? That means to know, it means to know experientially, fully. Who has known, who has understood, who has plumbed the depths of the mind of God? Or who has been God's counselor? I mean, we all need God's counsel. How, how could we even think, oh, God, you need my help on some of these issues in life, in the universe? And we may not think that to that degree, but sometimes when we don't understand what God's doing, we think that we have a better grasp on it and that we're going to do it our way. And in one sense, it's like we're trying to counsel God by our actions. It's like, yeah, that may be what you want me to do, but... I'm going to do this one. You'll see that it will work out. That's us trying to counsel God. When he says, my way is my way. And if you walk there in it, I will bless you. If you don't, I will discipline you. Verse 35 says, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Now, he's talking about salvation in all these questions. That's what all chapter 11 is about. It's about the elect and the remnant coming to faith in Christ by God's grace. And he's saying, 
Who has known God's purposes in doing this great work, bringing in the Gentiles, bringing in the elect Jews, bringing in the remnant, bringing them together? Who has counseled God about all these things? Or who deserves these things? Who's brought to God a gift saying, now, you know, I'm paying you back or, or you owe me something? None of us. We all come before him in Ephesians 2 as dead and depraved sinners. And again, this, this series of questions, I think, is really for our humility. It's for our humbling. The series of questions should produce humility. And it should produce awe in us. Reverence. It should produce God-exalting wonder in our hearts and our minds. Look at the question again there in 1134a, the first half. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Well, the answer is obvious, no one. No creature, we're all creatures, no creature can plumb the depths of God's mind. God is infinite. We are finite. We have limits to our understanding. Just try to explain the Trinity, right? There are limits to our understanding. God is holy. We are corrupt. That means all of our views, all of our thoughts are tainted with sin. How dare we say that we know the mind of a holy God apart from his revelation? Understand this. We don't have a right to even question his mind. We don't have a right to doubt him. We have no inherent right as creation, as creatures, to question the mind of our creator. That's what we learn in Job 38. Turn there quickly with me. Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And then he says something very astounding. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Now that's humbling, folks. Job's questioning God's purposes, God's reasoning for what he's doing in his life. And God says, Job, tighten up your belt and act like a man because I'm going to ask you a question. See if you can answer me. Listen to me. I'm the creator. You're the creation. You have no right here. There's no inherent right in creation to question the creator. The clay cannot say to the potter, why did you make me this way? We have no right to do that. Now, we do it, but we have no right to it. We have no right to counsel God about his ways of redemption, why he chooses some and not others, why he allows evil in this world and uses it for his purposes, yet he is not guilty of it. I can't understand all that. I can deal with it in the text. I can look at what he reveals to us, but I can't fathom it all. I don't understand the whole picture in its fullness because I'm a creature and he's the creator. So Paul goes further in verse 34 in Romans 11 and asks a second question in that same verse, part B. Who has been God's counselor? Who has counseled God on the matters of creation? Did God consult you? Did he call you? Did he send you a text? Hey, tell me how I ought to do this. No. He didn't consult us on creation, and he doesn't consult us on salvation either. God does whatever he wills, and whatever he wills is for his own glory and good, and that is the end of the argument. I don't have a right to question why he does what he does. 
But what I can be amazed by, what I can know for sure in Scripture is when I read the text, I find out that whatever God does is good because he is the measurement of all goodness and the bestower of all grace. God doesn't need my counsel. God doesn't need my, my coercion. He is not coerced by me or my counsel or my questions. God's his own counselor. He didn't consult us on creation, and we shouldn't think that he needs to have our consultation on salvation either. He does all that he does according to the counsel of his sovereign and holy will. We can see an example of how how we need to be humbled by this and transformed by this in Romans chapter 9, verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now right there, people stop at verse 13 and say, That's not fair. That's not right. Why would he do that? Why would he say that? He's going to give an answer to a person who asks that question here in a few moments. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then... It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, he's talking about redemption. He's talking about salvation. It doesn't depend on human will or power, but on God. That's the context here. And is it unjust of God to love one and hate the other? Is it fair? Praise God, he doesn't give us fairness. He gives us grace. Fairness means we all inherit damnation. That's fair. That's just. Yet, in His grace, He saves some who were headed to condemnation. Verse 17 says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He says, Here's why I created this man who became Pharaoh. This is why Pharaoh existed. Now, can I understand all that? Can I understand his purposes and his his depth of, of reason for all these things? No, but I believe what he says. This is what he did. He raised up Pharaoh for a very important purpose, to display his glory and his grace in bringing his people out of bondage and into salvation. Verse 18 says, So then... God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And then comes man's proud thoughts. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault then? Right? Why does he still find fault with sinners? He created them. He, he, he's, he's kept them alive. Why does he hold them guilty? For who can resist his will? then he says this in verse 20. Here's the answer from God. But who are you, O man, O creature? That's what he means. To answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God... Desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured 
with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared, notice, beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, saints, listen, this, this should humble us. This should help us see God has a sovereign determination to be glorified through the redemption of sinners that he chooses. I don't get to question that. All I can do is rejoice in that because I am a recipient of his grace and his mercy that came through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And I can tell any other sinner that I meet that there is hope for them in God's sovereign determination to save his people from their sins. They must repent and believe upon what God has revealed in Scripture about his way of redemption and trust in that alone. I can tell them that without hesitation because that's what God told me in Scripture and God used to save me and bring me to redemption. The finite thinking of man cannot question that. We can't question it. We don't have the ability. We don't have the brain power. All the collective humans in the world don't have enough brain power to question the purposes and counsel God in his reasoning for why he does what he does in saving any of us. We all deserve his wrath. But he decided to display his grace, his grace through us. That's just enough for me to give him praise for all eternity. I must accept what he's revealed to us. You must accept it. You must accept the word of God and just be amazed by it. Okay, that's the point. That's Paul's point in Romans 11. Look, understand this. When we read the book of, of, of Romans, you're going to understand one thing very clearly. God alone initiated the plan of redemption. God alone supplied the sacrifice. God alone secured all those that Christ died for from before the foundation of the world. And he saved them in time by his grace to display his love and his mercy on the earth. And that's beyond human comprehension. I can't grasp it all, but I can sure rejoice in that truth because that's what he's revealed to us. I can't fully understand it. You can't either. But you can accept it by faith because that is what is written in the word of God. God's plan of salvation. It should just simply astound us. It shouldn't just stir up all these questions and controversies in our heart. It's meant to move us to praise him. It's meant to change our hearts through what we learn. We who were separated are now united to him so we can give him praise. Not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it. Romans eleven thirty five says that. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Well, no one. What are you going to give God? What am I going to give God that God would repay me with salvation? I come to him as a defiled, satanic, evil being. And I'm going to offer him something good. Everything I do is evil. My thoughts, my intentions, everything about me is evil. What am I going to offer a holy and righteous God? Nothing except my sin. And Jesus willfully took it. He took it in my place and received my penalty so that I could receive his forgiveness, so that I could give him praise now and forever. If you're saved, folks, 
It is by God's gracious choice. He chose you. He picked you. He sent his son to die for your sins. Not for sins, for your sins. On the cross, Christ is receiving the just penalty that you and I deserve. He is receiving it in our place. Our sins laid to his account. His righteousness laid to ours by God's grace. And he did that so that we can give him praise. That's what the Christian life is all about. So just be glad in the truth. Be glad in this revelation. Be glad in this song of praise, this doxology in Romans 11. Just quit trying to unscrew the inscrutable this morning. And rest. Rest in this. You can't save yourself. You couldn't have saved yourself. You were dead in your sins and your trespasses. You were a valley of dry bones. You had nothing to offer God but sin and neediness. But God, it says in Ephesians 2.4, but God saved you according to his gracious plan and for his praise and glory. Again, just don't try to work out every single detail. You'll never get it. Rejoice in what he's revealed. Enjoy it. Be amazed by it. Sing it. Share it. Tell it to all that you know. Be amazed at how personal this choice was of you. Understand this. God's choice of you for redemption wasn't a cold and calculated decree of a distant deity. Not at all. God's choice of you was costly. It was his loving choice to send his son to rescue us personally, incarnate, in the flesh. God taking on flesh. God the Son becoming man to live our life for us because we cannot obey all of God's commands perfectly. Yet Christ did. He fulfilled all of the law of God righteously, perfectly, in my place. And then in the astounding promise and glory of God's mercy... He goes to the cross to take my penalty, to die under my sins. The sinless one, the holy one, the one who should have never felt pain on this earth. He dies a death that I deserve a million times over. So that I can continue on in sin, may it never be. So that I can give him praise and honor and glory and serve him with joy. Yes, that's why he saved us. That's why we sing this song of praise. That song of praise is just something that should fill our minds and our souls. And it should flow out of us daily. And if it does, it will protect us from condemnation. It will protect us from flirting with sin. If you preach the gospel to yourself, God in his mercy will remind you and astound you of his perfect love, his perfect mercy and grace that comes to us through Christ, and that will conform us, that will change us, that will sanctify us. See, thinking of the cross, thinking of what God did for us at the cross, that is the only real means of cultivating sanctification. Legalism and rules and rituals will never do what that will do. When you see the bloody cross of Christ in your heart, in your mind, in your understanding of Scripture... And you realize that he is bearing the weight of my sins, your sins. It would be very hard at that point for you to enter into active disobedience to God. Flirt with sin. Enjoy the passing passion of a sin at that moment. 
If we would look into the eyes of Christ in Scripture and see how God has shown us His love through His sacrifice, it would turn us from our sins and to holiness. That's what happens, I believe, in the Apostle Paul's life throughout his testimony of his life. Paul was not a perfect man. He was not righteous on his own. He had a forensic righteousness, an outside righteousness, a legal righteousness that was placed on his account, just like we do. Paul struggled with sin. There was a point in Paul's life when he was struggling with pride because he had multiple revelations about the Word of God and the glory of God in heaven. And not only that, this man was brilliant. This man was a genius intellectually, religiously. He memorized large portions of the Old Testament. He knew them verbatim. He had been given these revelations by God. And there were times in his life where that became a temptation. And pride would rise up, and God did something to prevent that pride from reigning. God sent a messenger of Satan to buffet his body, a thorn in the flesh, to make him humble for the many revelations that he had been given. And I believe as you read through Corinthians, you'll see that, and you'll see that when Paul begins to think about the revelations he's been given, he's turned through the suffering, he's turned through the buffeting to joy over God giving him such an honorable position. He, he testifies in Timothy that he is the chief of all sinners. Paul never forgot that he was imperfect. He never forgot that he was saved by grace. And he always wanted to testify to it. He always wanted to glorify God in it. He always wanted to give him the praise he deserves. And I think that's what we want as well. But we won't do it unless we're focused on it. We won't do it unless we contemplate it. But if we do we fix our minds on this, we will exalt in God's grace. That's the third part I want to share with you quickly here in Paul's song in Romans eleven thirty six, It ends with, thirdly, a song of exaltation. Now, exaltation is simply a feeling of triumphant elation or jubilation expressed by rejoicing, verbal rejoicing, heartfelt rejoicing. It's a feeling of triumphant elation. And that's why I've titled this section here, A Song of Exaltation. Look what it says in verse 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Again, he's talking about our salvation. What he's saying is this. We are saved from God's wrath, by God's grace, for God's praise. It's from Him, it's through Him, and it's for Him. That's what he's saying. And, and this truth, as, as he's writing it, as he's pinning this by the inspiration of the Spirit, it's filling him with joy. He feels elated. He feels like he's going to burst at the seams when you read this in the text. And that's what it should produce in us. So let me ask you that question. When you think about this truth, are you filled with exaltation? Are you filled and overflowing with jubilation? Are you expressing it? Through your rejoicing. Do you express it when you sing? Do you express it when you share the gospel? Do you express it whenever you pray? That should be happening. Again, it happened, it seems to me like every time I read about the Apostle Paul and I find him speaking about the gospel, all of a sudden when he speaks about the gospel, he breaks out in doxology, in praise. You can see it in, I think it's First Timothy you can go there, you can see these songs. He talks about God and His glory and His grace. And he talks about to the King be praise and honor whenever he thinks about the gospel. 
And my question this morning for all of us is, do we do that? Honestly, saints, listen, do we rejoice like this when you think about God's grace? Or is God's grace one more theological term that you have written in the back of your Bible that you know what it means, you can define it, but are you living in it? Do you rejoice like that when you think about the gospel? Do you rejoice like Paul here, though not perfectly, but joyfully from the heart? And if you don't, and I think all of us would estimate that we don't do this enough, we can definitely say that. And if we don't, we need to ask ourselves why we don't. Maybe we don't do it because we're focused on our own lives, our own purposes, our own plans, our own cares. And we're not focused on how God has cared for us in Christ. Maybe we're focused on how we can fix our lives. We can strengthen our lives through our disciplines, through our work, rather than resting in his work and his power to transform our hearts. We need to stop. We need to stop doing that. and We need to rest in his truth. Look how Paul goes on there in verse 36b. and basically ends his doxology with one more breath of exaltation, or as I would say, one more verse, one more verse. He says this to him, that is to God and to God alone is what he means. It's implied here to him. Be glory forever to God alone. Be glory forever. Amen. Now, saints, I want to tell you that this doxology, it actually doesn't end here in this text for every believer in Jesus Christ. It only begins. Actually, this doxology will never end for the redeemed sinners that God has chosen for salvation. It won't end because this is the song that we're going to sing throughout all eternity, according to Revelation 5. Go there with me. This is our song, saints, that we will be singing for eternity with the saints of old and those to come. Revelation 5, 9, sounds like Psalm 98 that we started with. It said to sing a new song to the Lord. Well, here's the new song. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, speaking of Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals for or because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, notice this, and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all the dead raised to life and all that is in them saying to God and to the Lamb, to God and to the one who's on the throne with him, the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. They're worshipping Jesus. Saints, we're going to be doing this with them. This is our future promise. It's an amazing promise, isn't it? Look what it says. We are saved to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's my summary here of this passage. You're saved to sing his praises forever. 
You're going to do that in eternity. But let me ask you a very practical question now, presently. How are you doing that in this life? Because that's why God saved you. He didn't save you for future praise. He saved you for immediate praise. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're created for his praise. And actually that word workmanship in that text in Ephesians 2.10, get this, saints, that word workmanship is poime. It says we are his song. We are his poem of grace. We are to be God's work of art that's created in Christ to reflect his glory now and forever. We are saved to be his poem. We are his song of praise. Now, doesn't that change the way you want to live your life? Doesn't that change the way you respond to circumstances? Let me ask you three questions to consider how you can exalt God's workmanship, his determination, and give him the praise he deserves because of his grace. Ask yourself this. How are you exalting God's workmanship through your life now? evangelistically as a recipient of grace are you exalting that grace by sharing the truth with others practically are you are you broken hearted when you meet unbelievers or are you hardened do you weep over them and with them or do you turn away from them because they're so defiled and you forget from what god saved you from if, if we have received god's grace we can't feel indifferent toward the unbelievers We who were dead in our sins and our trespasses were saved by God's grace, and we should certainly be gracious as a result of what he has given us. We are to exalt his workmanship by sharing it with those in our life that are in need of the gospel. If you want to exalt God's work in your life, I believe it will show up in your evangelism. It will be evident in your evangelism. It will also be evident if there is no evangelism that you don't truly want to exalt the glorious grace of our God. Secondly, what does God's sovereign determination to grace you with salvation produce in your life now, corporately, in this church family? Are you willing to humbly serve one another as co-heirs of God's unmerited favor? Doesn't that change the whole dynamic in the church family? You're co-heirs with me and grace. None of us deserve it. We're all together in it. So I have no right to look down on anyone who's struggling or in sin. Instead, I need to extend my hand to them. I need to carry their burden. Do you see those around you that are suffering? Do you see those who are spiritually weak, in sin, misunderstanding the scriptures? Do you see their failures? It's easy to see everybody's failures, right? It's hard to extend grace to them. Do you see their failures as parents? Do you see their failures as employees, as friends, as husbands, as wives, as students? Well, if you can see their failures, you better be ready to carry their burdens. If you have received grace by God's sovereign determination, you better be determined to help others when they're struggling the way God has helped you by extending to them what they don't deserve, but what they truly need. That's what we're called to do. If we're grateful for God's determination to grace us, then grace should flow out of us. Thirdly, think about this. How does... Your joy over God's grace reveal itself through your life personally. In other words, how does the revelation of God's grace 
cause your heart to rejoice in such a way that your, your life is actually changed? Do you see change in your life as a result of the joy in your heart? Ask yourself this. Are you, are you eager and willing to die to sin? Are you willing and eager to die to selfishness? That's a hard one. Nobody wants to deal with that one. But we have to deal with it. It keeps us from service. Are you, are you willing to follow Christ's commands? Now, let me make it harder. This is what Jesus said. Are you willing to love those who despitefully use you? Are you willing to love your enemies? Are you willing to comfort the weary without expecting something in return? Are you willing to do it out of grace, out of the joy of the grace you've been given, out of the joy over what God's done for you? Are you changed? Is your attitude changed towards your enemies and the needy? If it's not, you need to examine yourself. You need to examine your heart and repent because God has graced you so that grace would flow from you and out of you personally. Church, this is Paul's point in his song of praise. His his song of praise there in Romans 11 and Ephesians 2.10, they actually weave together. This is God's purpose in saving us. The life that Paul lived was a life devoted to Christ, to sing God's praise, to exult in Christ in joy. And Paul lived that life by the power of God's Spirit and the power of God's grace. And I want you to remember this. That same Spirit and that same grace resides in each one of you who have repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So that means you're without excuse. You can sing God's praises now and forever because of this great truth. So rejoice in it. Prepare your heart to do this and seek to exult in Christ as we leave this place today. Let's pray. God, we, we look at these texts in Scripture that declare your greatness and the power of your grace. And we are humbled that you would choose us, that you would make us recipients of Christ's great love, that you would, you would pour that love upon us that we don't deserve, but that we need so badly. And yet you have revealed to us that that love was not just merely to redeem us for eternity, but was to change us here presently. So God, I'm asking you to change our hearts this morning. Change my heart, change my thinking, change my response to the revelation you give us of your grace. Change my actions, God. Change us so that our our lives would truly testify to the power of Jesus Christ who died for us and the grace that you have bestowed upon us and your spirit that now works in us. God, we are to be trophies of that grace and we can be by your power and through your great love. We ask you to do that today in Christ's name. Amen.